Thank you, Autumn. Very well done. Very well done. If you would, please, turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Jean Turner asked me today, I always give her my notes, you probably noticed, because she doesn't hear well. And she said, is this the last message on Timothy? And um, I said, uh, told her we're going to do an overview next week, as we did it when we ended at 1 John. Remember, we went through the main topics, just a summary. So we're going to do a summary of 1 Timothy next week on all the topics that we have covered to bring them back to memory. And then we'll do some topicals for the month of September, turning to a new book of the Bible again in October. So one more message from 1 Timothy, but this is the last text, beginning in verse 20. So 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20 is where we will pick up. And as we look at these last few words that the Apostle Paul leaves to Timothy, we can sense a concern. Paul is concerned about this church, he's concerned about this young pastor, and he doesn't leave Timothy with a, you know, look forward to seeing you at the timeshare in spring. You know, where we can talk about old times and, and, and laugh it up and yuck it up and enjoy one another. No. The tone here is one of concern for this young pastor. And concerning what, what we've learned over the last eight months, we began this book in January, what we've learned here is, is Paul doesn't anticipate just a sudden break in the clouds. Just the sun to start shining and everything to turn rosy on the church there. No beach holidays in, in sight. No, Paul, he lives in reality. He knows there's going to be resistance. He knows there are adversaries. And, and there had been adversity to the good news of Jesus Christ, to the gospel, uh, in Ephesus from early in the beginning. Very early on in that church, it is here where, where Paul and his companions in ministry were, were drug into the town theater among a great uprising, much protest, namely that Paul was preaching that those little silver shrines that Demetrius was crafting, Paul was telling people that those aren't gods at all. He was upsetting the industry in town. And uh, uh, that trinket industry was actually in danger of collapse because of the ministry of Paul. So they rose up against him and accused him. And the adversity to the Christian message, at that time, it was just simply referred to as the way. Is it not? Is it not the way? Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And they called it the way in Acts chapter 19. And, and the opposition to the way, it was so fierce that Paul, uh, describing the Ephesian resistance later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, says this, At Ephesus, I fought with wild beasts. That was the reception that he got there, fighting with wild beasts. Now, if I, I have to admit one thing, it, it's that I just bemoan confrontation. Adversity and confrontation, especially when witnessing. I just bemoan it. Anyone else that way? And, and in fact, when it comes to confrontation, I, I would really prefer to do anything else in order to, to avoid it. Personally, I'd probably get on a ship and, and, and board it, one that's headed towards Tarshish, probably, and I, I would flee confrontation rather than get into a, an argument about religious discussion. Don't like that confrontation. And the prophet Jonah, he and I, we'd, we'd be best of friends, I think. 
I really do. I anticipate uh, that many, maybe most here, are in the same boat or perhaps would gladly get on that same boat with myself and Jonah and climbing alongside. We just don't like adversity. We don't like confrontation at all. The fear of adversity sometimes paralyzes uh, congregations, paralyzes them from going out, paralyzes them from reaching out, and, and in response, in, in, in consequence, a lot of times churches will avoid engaging the culture around them at all. It's detrimental. Uh, a lost society needs to engage us. They need to hear from us. Uh, we avoid uh, serious and, and spiritual discussions because we don't want confrontation. That's why a lot of times you know, we, just, we keep things superficial, don't we? People we run into. Talk about things like the Olympics or football or Ohio State. Eh. Anything to avoid a spiritual conversation. And perhaps our greatest fear of witnessing, I know that I have this fear as well as a pastor, you might bump into someone who knows more than you do about the Bible. They might pin you down on something and you're just like, I don't even know how to answer that. Then you run into people that actually enjoy confrontation. Have you ever run into those? I know I have. They're not only unbelievers, there are a lot of Christians that really just enjoy confronting other people, especially in the Bible. They just want to pounce. We're afraid of running into them. Because we might, might say something and not be able to wiggle our way back out of it. You know those people like that? They're a very small segment of our population. Very tiny. As we witness and we go out, very few are of that uh, demeanor. Uh, in actuality, most people that cross our paths, they have questions about life. They have concerns about their families and their future. They worry about tomorrow. And folks, we have the answers. We have the answers for them from the Scriptures. So we must engage our community. And, and I'm very persuaded that the reason that more of us don't witness more often it's not that we don't want to see people saved. It's not that uh, we are too busy even. It's not the excuses that we make to fill our schedule so that we can flee. It's because we fear a negative outcome. We fear that there's going to be something negative that's going to come out of that situation, in that confrontation. In fact, fleeing is how Jonah is described when heading down to that port city of Joppa as he boards that ship to Tarshish, he is fleeing from the task that God left for him. We have a big problem with this in the church. We do as individuals, we do as uh, a corporate organization, as a church, as a body. For this reason, I thought it would be advantageous that our next study, it will begin sometime in October, is going to be through the Old Testament book of Jonah. Because we as Christians, you know, we just can't fulfill our obligation, our witnessing to Christ, our, our taking the message, as Jonah was called to do. We can't fulfill that individually or corporately as a church without at some time, some point, in some situation, facing a little bit of adversity. It's going to come. And we'd prefer to steer around it, perhaps. We would like to avoid opposing arguments. 
We want to escape adversity. We're very much like Jonah, but we can't be faithful to Christ and Scripture. We can't do an end around on adversity. We have to go through it. We have to endure. We have to persevere through it, as Jonah found out the hard way. Right? So if you're in Christian ministry, which we all are, if you're a born-again Christian today, you are in Christian ministry, um, you and I are going to have to experience adversity and opposing argument from time to time. And you know, poor Timothy, he's got a bad rap for, uh, for this. He, he's been associated throughout church history with a common term. Does anybody remember what it is? Timid. Timid Timothy. Right? And all the commentaries that I've ever looked at, they always describe him as a timid young man. The poor young boy, you know, he must have had a really tough time standing up for himself. Must, must, have, must have been tough for a boy like him and even had a weak stomach. You remember somewhere in the scriptures there it said he's had a weak stomach. And, and so Paul must have been obliged to write him this letter reminding him, you know, to, to strengthen up a little bit. Stand up, be a man. And Paul had to, to defend Timothy against those bullies in Ephesus. You know, perhaps like one of those mothers that has to teach her son on the play- playground how to make a fist, you know, and protect himself in his face. Defensive purposes only. Make sure you got the thumb outside, not inside. You don't want to break your thumb. We see Timothy like that uh, uh, quite often as a frail type man. Fails to stand up. But I'm not certain that's accurate about Timothy at all. I'm really not. And when you review the challenging topics that we've addressed over these last six chapters, the the adversaries and the adversities that he encountered, uh, Timothy could not have been a lightweight. He wasn't a lightweight at all. Let us not forget that this same Ephesus, this church in Ephesus, was the group that uh, in Acts chapter 20 uh, took that first set of elders and shook them all up. Shook him up like a play toy. Scared him off. What happened to those elders we've talked about? They were gone. So Paul actually brought Timothy in as some kind of reinforcement. A strengthening of the Ephesian church. So even if Timothy did have some self-doubt, and I'm sure Timothy had some self-doubt. Most Christians have self-doubt. I have self-doubt. Even so, he must have had some backbone too. If you're a Christian here today, I believe you've got some backbone as well. And at the end of this letter, this, this letter of exhortation, this instruction, Paul leaves Timothy and us with this final charge that we see in chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. I'll read it to you. Oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. You know, oh, Timothy. There, there's an intensity, there's, there, there's a sincere expression of concern expressed here by Paul. He only uses this expression a couple times in Scripture. One of the other times is uh, for, with the Galatians. He said, oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? This old concern that Paul has uh, is a solemn charge to defend what has been entrusted to Timothy. 
And that which has been entrusted includes, we learn in this book, a good confession. That was back in verse 12 of verse 6. He also had an appointment to ministry, which had been witnessed by the church. He had had his hands laid on him by the church, commissioned for ministry service, we found in chapter 4. And then, of course, the truths of Christian doctrine, as we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, just a few verses ago, the sound words of Jesus Christ. These were all entrusted to Timothy, trusted to him. And this, this term here, entrusted, it, it was often used in those days to describe a bank deposit. It's been deposited with you. It's been entrusted with you. And your job is to guard it, Timothy. Now, I think most of us, if we are thinking about our finances, we're thinking about retirement, we're thinking about Social Security and other things, or if you have some money that you've put away in a bank, you expect them to guard it, Right? You trust them. You've placed it in their hands. You've left it with them. Most of the time, we're expecting a return, an interest on an investment. What happens if you don't get it back? Are you very happy if that trust has not been managed appropriately? Probably not. And, and, and here, Paul is reminding Timothy, guard it. It's entrusted to you. Don't let anyone take it from you. And if you are a Christian here today, you know, God has placed in your possession a trust. He has. It's under your care. You have a confession to proclaim. It started with your public profession, usually a baptism. And everyone who is in Christ has a spiritual gifting that that he or she must manage as the Spirit has gifted you. And, And you're bound to accomplish your ministry, as Timothy was, within the constraints, within the guidelines, within the parameters of Holy Scripture. You have a stewardship. And you're God's steward. He has entrusted you. But, but there's, a, there's a caveat here as well we don't want to miss. You know, sometimes Christians become so concerned about guarding, protecting that stewardship, that we, we almost like lock it away in a steel vault. We don't want anything to happen to it. And we spin that dial, or we put in that key, and, and then we try to lose the combination or throw it away. So nothing will disturb it. And and we just justify ourselves by saying, well, you know, I've got my faith. I know what I believe. I am a Christian, but I've just, I've locked it away here where it's good and safe, you know, where nobody can disturb it. Safekeeping. For another illustration, if you're a sports fan, consider basketball. And uh, we want to keep the ball on our team, right? Because if you allow the ball to go to the other team, you can't score. You can't win if you aren't playing offense, and you're concerned about that opposition. As long as you're an offense, the other team can't make a basket, can't score points, and we're very careful to defend that ball. Got one arm out in front of it, and the other, the other hand back there bouncing our ball. Some of us treat the gospel in that way. We got it back here. We know what it is, we're good with it, we're handy with it, can do around the back passes and other things. We're not playing ball with others. 
That's what ta- Paul's talking about here um, is playing ball. He's not talking about guarding it where no one else can see it. It's not that we lock it away, our trust, and store it until somehow Christ returns and then we hand it back to him. There was a man who did that. Jesus talks about him in Matthew chapter 25. He's a man who did just that. And this man's master planned a long journey. And in in verse 14 of Matthew 25, the master, he called together his slaves and, and he entrusted his possessions to them. Probably remember the the story. And and notice he entrusted, again, he entrusted his possessions to these stewards, these slaves, similar word, and he placed in each hands a trust. One got five talents. The second guy got two talents, and these are measures of money. They're not necessarily talents, though that is a good application. And each got a measure of money. The third got one. And the master then went away on his journey. And then the first two, they traded their talents as was anticipated by the master when he left. They earned an increase for their master. Anybody know what this is all alluding to here? It's not code, is it? It's not code. And, and the type of increase that Jesus is referring to here, it's self-explanatory. It's, it's in the kingdom. It's the gospel. It's souls. It's people. It's what's precious. And, and uh, the two were rewarded. The one who got five talents, the one who got two talents, they're rewarded. When, when the master came back, when he returned, he placed them in charge of many things because they were found trustworthy. But verse 24 explains there was one. He had received the one talent, and he came up and said, Master, you know, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you did not scatter seed. I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. He offered back what is the master's. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. We're not to guard in this passage. We're not guarding by locking it away and putting it in a vault. It's a different type of guarding. We're not to hoard the basketball to ourselves. That's the reason that the Pro Basketball instituted the shot clock, right? You know that. So they have to pass it back and forth and each team gets a try. No, we're not to avoid shooting in fear of missing we're not to keep the ball to ourselves. We're supposed to go play ball. So when Paul here warns Timothy in verse 20, avoid worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, it doesn't mean we avoid engaging people. This isn't a call to isolation, spiritual isolation. And, and it doesn't mean we don't engage the adversaries most of the time you don't even know who is, who isn't an adversary until you talk to them. doesn't mean we don't engage them. It means that we defend our confession. We confend, defend our doctrine. We defend Christ and the sound words of Christ from opposing ideologies. That's what we do. We defend it from worldly chatter, empty philosophies. Because the world would love to us to sow some of that into church doctrine. They'd love to sow it in. And, and we don't permit them to, to penetrate our theology and our defenses. Instead, we penetrate their defenses with our ideology. 
And when it, when it comes to this worldly chatter, we must realize that the discourse that the world brings, the discussion that they bring, it's inherently unclean. Have you notice that? It's unclean. Uh, it's perverted. That's why some of your translations will use the word profane. It's vain. It's empty. Their philosophy is empty. It means it has no substance. It has no, no value. It has no base. It's not in any reality. It's just empty. It adds nothing to the Christian faith. And in fact, for us to absorb that profane, worldly chatter, it would eventually pollute our doctrine. You see that today. So, so you must defend your doctrine as a church, as an individual. You must filter out the information that the world is transmitting in. You have to. You do that on your computers all the time. You're on your computer. There's certain information that you don't want coming in. It's called a virus. And if it gets into your computer, it's going to wreak all kinds of havoc. It's going to tear things up. So what do you have? You have an antivirus. You're keeping some defense. It doesn't mean you don't keep information from coming in. And you discern it as it is coming in. But you screen out the virus. That's what we have to do as Christians. We have to assess. We have to, that's what antivirus does. It assesses. It checks in the, on threats and it screens out. It doesn't allow you, it to pollute your, your uh, files. So Colossians 2 verse 8 conveys this same principle that we're to, we're to utilize here with these words. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Rather than Christ. You know, the world has been taken captive by the philosophies of profanity. They, they've absorbed myths and fallacies. Most of them are just empty and man-made, fabricated. Fallacies about things, fallacies about life, fallacies about why we're here. Myths about what we're doing and how long we're going to be here and where we're going. These are philosophies that are empty. They have no basis in Scripture. They don't reflect what God has told us. We're going to go through a few of them in a moment, just a sampling. Uh, these things that Timothy has to guard against and we have to guard against. Uh, they're, scripture says they're elementary principles, meaning they're very basic. They're principles of the world. And, and people accept things. We have to remember this. People accept things that are communicated very simply. They do. People like things kept simple. They, they generally don't want to have to think hard through things. As we're witnessing, we have, to, we have to keep things basic. We're sin. Christ is not. He's pure. We're destined for hell. He saved us from hell. Basic principles that are founded in Scripture. And you can, you can screen where people are. You have to toss that proverbial ball back and forth with people and screen uh, how they're thinking with your neighbor. And uh, whether it's someone you meet on an airplane wherever you're discussing something, they might have an alternative view of marriage. That, that might be one of those things that they've been fed. And, and you have to be able to filter that out. You don't entertain their idea of an alternative lifestyle. That's one of the philosophies that the world is trying to permeate the church with, and it's been very successful. And, and you don't accept that alternative because you know that what they're representing 
does not come from Scripture. It doesn't originate from Scripture. You can't find it in Scripture. In fact, it contradicts Scripture. It can't be harmonized with Scripture. And the fact is, with most of these, they don't even pass or surpass the threshold of just observed science or common sense. A lot of these things don't even surpass that threshold of common sense. But unless they're provoked by the Spirit, most people don't want to discuss or or consider deeper things than what's on the surface. And we see that with, with things like evolution and homosexuality. They're told how it is, they accept how it is, and they're good with it. They know no different. Okay, live how you want to live. I'll live how I want to live. In fact, that's one of the main draws to a lot of these sins that are so propagated today, you know. Why do people want to accept profane on television, on movies, and other things? Because if somebody is doing something very profane, what's it do? It takes the spotlight off me, right? If those people are allowed to do that and it's accepted in the culture and in church among God's people, well, then my shacking up with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, that's nothing. If, they, if that's acceptable, then, then I know I'm good. And that's as far as they take it. They, they just reason it. It's very rational. It's very alluring. By the way, those two things, evolution, homosexuality, two of those philosophies that can't be reconciled to the Bible. Very interesting. Because people accept them very readily, the culture around us. Evolution and homosexuality. You can't reason those two together. They do not work. See, it's a very basic, elementary, superficial explanation for how we got here and why we're here. Amazing, amazing. That's an excellent example of what a very superficial philosophy and knowledge will get you. Um, It's unreasonable if they just take a second. In fact, the proper response to someone who might bring that up would be, you know, did you realize in Matthew 19 that, that the reason that Jesus created us, or God's, Jesus said God created us, referring back to Genesis, the reason he made us in the very beginning, male and female, was for the purpose of marriage. And they'll go, Jesus said that? Yeah, Jesus said that. And you could also say that he says in Luke 17 that, that God caused fire and brimstone to, to fall on Sodom, destroyed every last one of them. Now have a nice day. They'll say, Jesus said that? Yes, Jesus said that. And and you'll discover quite quickly how tight they hold to their philosophy. How tightly they embrace it. And and whether they hold fast to that false philosophy, you know, because they've been force-fed that stuff since grade school. It's no wonder they they hold to it. It's like it's it's all they've ever known if they haven't been in a Bible-believing Christian church. And, and you'll experience right away that there is a segment of this populace that professes this that's really searching for genuine and sincere answers. They really are. They just need the dialogue to understand it. They need the dialogue to, to know what the Bible says, and that's what our role is. And some of them will abandon their party line as soon as they hear something that's reasonable. As soon as they hear something... Uh, Uh, from someone that is knowledgeable. 
about Scripture and what Jesus has said and other things, a lot of them will just, will just abandon and say, Really? Tell me more. And you're going to run in once in a while to adversaries that just want to double down. You can't do anything about that, but we can't leave things locked in the vault and, and avoid discussion because we have that fear. Um, let us add also, when we're in these discussions with people who profess these things, it also helps to be nice. Sometimes we as Christians forget that, that we need to be nice to people. I'll give you the reason we need to be nice when we're facing adversity and opposing arguments, as our text says today. Um, Titus chapter 3, verse 2 reminds us this. To malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Now why would we do that? Oh, the passage answers why in verse 3. It goes on. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. In a word, humility. We were once there as well. And it's only by the grace of God that we're here today worshiping in spirit and truth and we've still got a long way to go. So humility and understanding to the unsaved person. They want to see some compassion, some love, some knowledge, yes, and integrity. But they want to talk to someone who has some real answers. And it could, coincidentally, we see in verse 4 that same text. Again, that was Titus chapter 3, verses 2, 3, and 4, if you want to look back again later. Coincidentally, verse 4 continues, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. God's grace. So when we play ball with people, we need to be humble. We also need to not be a pushover. Uh, um... We can't let their lies, their philosophies invade our theology, permeate our theology, and uh, come into the church. You know, Timothy here, he was encountered with many of the same problems we're facing today. Many. Many of the very same problems. Man hasn't changed a lot. You say, really? No, it hasn't. He's dealing with a lot of these same things. He's dealing with adultery. He's dealing with murder homosexuality, uh, all kinds of lusts, idolatry, a big one in Ephesus, all kinds of the same things we're, we're encountering today. Man hasn't changed a whole lot. Our lusts draw us into the same places. And uh, the tactic of our primary adversary, the devil, the tactic, his primary tactic anyhow, is a normalization of sin in society and the normalization of sin in the church. That's his method. That's what he is trying to accomplish. He can suck the life right out of a church by letting that permeate. And I'll explain why in a few moments. He'll get us to lay our defenses down in the Scripture. And then once you do that in one location, you can't stand on any part of Scripture anymore. Once you've said that one part of Scripture doesn't mean what it clearly says... Now you can't enforce anything over in this part of Scripture. It's a unit. It's all together. Either it's all God's Word, it's all 
God-breathed, or none of it is. So they try to get us to compromise in just one small spot. Then the Bible has fallen, where where Scripture is clear. Yet, though uh, Satan is the primary adversary, uh, we are surely responsible for our lusts and our sins. We're personally culpable for our sins. We can't blame them on anybody else. We're carried away by our own lust, James says. Um, but the devil's a skilled deceiver. And it's part of the reason that, that he and the other fallen angels are going to be cast into the lake of fire for eternal destruction. Revelation 12.9 tells us this, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Deception. Philosophies. Empty deception. Worldly chatter. That's what he's into. Notice, Satan is the deceiver. And again in Revelation 20, verse 3, Satan is thrown into the abyss and sealed in it so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. That's what he's doing. He's deceiving with with false ideologies, even even deceiving the church in a sense. And he orchestrates these very convincing arguments. They stand opposed to Scripture. They're opposing arguments. They're opposed to sound doctrine. They're opposed to the sound words of Jesus Christ. And he has servants that circulate them. Some of them are designated servants. Some of them have just, that's all they've ever known. And they keep on circulating it. And, and we're going to face them. We're going to encounter them. Their arguments are going to sometimes go like this. Here's your one sample. You know, you can't tell me that a loving God would ever send anybody to hell. Well, yeah. But what does the Bible consistently say? Consistently. Jesus said in Matthew twenty-five forty-one, in referencing the final judgment, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. That's something that's consistently found in Scripture. Jesus talked a lot about hell and, and the the gnashing of teeth and the suffering. Another one is like this. You know, there are so many religions around the world. You can't tell me that there's just one way. Those other religions must have their own way. Jesus is the way. The Bible consistently says what? There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That's not an isolated verse. That's consistent throughout Scripture. There is no other way. But we have to admit that these arguments, you know, many ways, many religions, all of these different things, they're alluring. For an unbeliever, they're very alluring. Yeah, that sounds easy. I can go along with that. Here's one of my favorites. These philosophies, this worldly chatter. They say, you know, everybody has some good in them. Everybody, they're just good people. Really? What's Scripture consistently say? We're not good people. We're sinners in need of a Savior. And in Romans uh, chapter 3, verse 10, Psalm 14 also says, There is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They've been, become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. That's why we needed a Savior to come. We're not good. We're just good relatively. I'm relatively good compared to some other people. It's all just relative. 
And these are the type of these ideologies that we strive against. They're trying to permeate the church. There will be no judgment. That's one. We have to strive against it. Number one, there will be no judgment. These are nothing new. The Apostle Peter said in 2 Peter 3.3, Mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning. And now what they say, Jesus, oh, where is his coming? Peter said, don't worry, he's coming. There will be a judgment. Uh, the multiple ways to God. Ephesus itself, it was the epicenter of multiple ways to God. The temple of Artemis, uh, the only real sin there was professing that there's only one God. That was the problem that got the church in trouble. It wasn't that they believed in Jesus. It's that they believed exclusively in Jesus. That's what didn't go so well. And Timothy was continuously encountering these false religions that Paul has told him to stand against, these opposing arguments. So opposition and adversity are nothing new. What does Peter also say? Don't be surprised about the fiery ordeal that's among you comes upon you for your testing, it says. Don't be surprised. Don't think it's as if some strange thing has happened to you. There's going to be testing. There's going to be opposition. So, so we won't be able to avoid. We can't do an end around these opposing arguments or avoid the adversaries. Uh, we have to persevere through them. And then perhaps the most embarrassing accusation that we encounter, we don't like this one at all as Christians. I don't like it either. It's a charge that we cling to that old dusty Bible. Supposedly it's been proven wrong so many times over. I don't know where. There, yeah, show me. That's what you tell those people. It has so many mistakes. Show me one. Yeah, there are none. There are no mistakes in the Bible. And we, this charge that we cling to this dusty Bible. They say, if we just open our minds and embrace modern science, then we'd have the answers. Then we would know. We, we, we'd see all along how, how wrong we've been. So this is nothing new. These are these false, uh, false arguments that we see in verses 20 and 21 uh, that is falsely exposed, the King James says, as science. Falsely exposed. And, and if you hold a newer translation of the Bible, it probably says these arguments are falsely called knowledge. Knowledge. Uh, it, it, uh, it's, it's a Greek term you're probably familiar with, that gnosis. Knowledge, Gnosticism, a movement that came after the Bible. Just this knowledge. It doesn't describe so much an empirical science. We think of laboratory science. That's not what it's talking about here. It's talking about the science of philosophy, the science of knowledge. And it implies that there is a higher philosophy, a higher knowledge, a more intelligent understanding than what you Bible believers have. That's what they imply. And the knowledge or gnosis, it's eventually transformed into Gnosticism, as we said. And that's a belief that there is an understanding of God that is deeper than what we see on the pages of Scripture, on the surface of Scripture. They say There's a deeper knowledge there. And, and the spiritual elite are the only ones who can access it. That higher knowledge is there hidden to us simpleman, simpletons. You just don't understand, they say. And to really get to know God, you have to achieve this deeper knowledge. Does that sound too mystical for America? 
scientific, rational America, mysticism. How many times while witnessing have you heard this? Well, you know, Jesus talks to me all the time. Really? Oh, yeah, he, he talks to me too. All the time in the Bible. And they're like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. They respond, that's a good start. You're getting a start there. Um, but if you ever achieve my level of understanding, maybe someday Jesus will talk to you too. Because there's more understanding out there than what your Bible gives you. Ever run into that? They're using what they call a trump card. Are we allowed to talk about cards here? No, we don't play cards here. Um, no, I, I have a, fam- a close family member, actually, that you can't reason with from the Scriptures. You can't open up and talk about it because that member has been visited by God. You may have encountered something like this. Scripture possesses no authority over them because they've progressed beyond Scripture in their own personal experience. For some, it's a visitation by God. Others, it's dreams. Some uh, are visions. Some other kind of uh, personal experience that they have. And this is just predominant all over our culture. Uh, This higher knowledge, very prevalent, it has creeped way into the church. Way into the church, not in this church. Maybe on the edges. I don't know. No. There's no higher understanding of God than is exposed on Scripture. You don't add to it. You don't take away from it. But people can claim that they have a higher understanding, that that God talks to them, that they've had dreams. And you can't contradict anything that they say because their personal experience provides a superior knowledge. And it trumps the Word of God. You hear that all the time. I'm not talking politics here. Perhaps. Um, you remember there was a gentleman here not long ago. And he had become close friends with Michael the Archangel. Nothing that he had squared with Scripture. It was all distorted from Scripture. But you couldn't reason with him. You couldn't talk with him, Right? He just would not accept what the Word of God says because he had his personal experience that held a higher card. Uh, you run into this all the time. But to, to that, Scripture says in Colossians 2.18, Let no one defraud you by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. Taking his stand on visions he was seen and inflated with God, without cause by his fleshly mind. That means they're proud. They're proud. I love how the King James translates this taking his stand on visions he has seen. It says, intruding into those things, meaning going into detail about those things that he hath not seen. That's right. He hadn't actually seen them. Uh, The text implies it was all in the mind. All imagined. All imagined. And, And that's why, this is why we administrate the church only through the authority of God's enduring word. Only on that authority. Never by what one individual says that they have seen, what they have heard, a vision they've had, a dream, uh, any other thing, a close encounter of the third kind perhaps. Uh, Both, Scripture says uh, two things. Don't do it. The other thing is they're unverifiable. There's no way you can verify them. And, And I know there's protests from time to time. 
And uh, there might be a little here, and people say, well, you can't tell a person what they've seen or the visions they've had or something they might have heard. No, I can't tell you that individually. What I can say is we don't administrate, govern, make, cho- make decisions for the church from it. That's all it is. Because Scripture is our authority. Um, coincidentally, you know, all of these manifestations of this superior knowledge, all of them eventually contradict the Bible somehow. If you let them persist, you'll have churches that will formulate entire theologies, entire doctrinal um, dissertations around apparitions. Does that happen? Around sightings, around visions, and having whole doctrines around them? That happens. That happens. And they write about it, they write extensively about it, and those writings start to replace that. And they become opposing arguments. We see in verse 20, uh, this word, uh, term, opposing arguments, it's one word in the Greek. And you'll recognize it. The word is antithesis. We all know what a thesis is, right? Academically, it's that a thesis is a, is a long, written-out argument, a defense, a, um, uh, a research paper that's done on, on an individual level, an individual personal research paper. Sometimes we call it a dissertation. And, uh, but here we have what Scripture calls an antithesis against Scripture. And it means it's a long, drawn-out argument against Christian doctrine. Where does professing or or defending any long, drawn-out argument against Christianity take you? Takes you to verse 21. Astray from the faith. Takes us astray. Away from Christianity. Literally, it says, missing the mark. Like you're shooting a bow and arrow at something. You have missed the mark. Like the ESV says, you have swerved from the faith. You've missed it. Missed the mark. And, and as, as we witness, as you and I witness, and as we engage, we're going to encounter many receptive hearts. You're going to encounter some strong opposing arguments. They're going to be good arguments. They've been well thought through. Um, and you're going to run into adversity. It's going to tempt you to swerve from the Scripture and miss the faith. So how do you persevere through? Very quickly. Amen. Jesus, he's our example. After his baptism in Matthew 4, he was driven into the wilderness. He was going to be tempted by the adversary. And Christ at this point was at a weakened state after an extensive um, period of fasting. And the devil said to him, Command that these stones become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And when Satan tempted Jesus to display his deity by throwing himself off the pinnacle of the temple, that God would cause angels to save him, Jesus replied, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You don't test God. And on a third occasion, when, when uh, being tempted to receive a place of majesty in the material realm 
by Satan, said, I will give you all of this. You simply bow down and worship me. Jesus said, leave Satan, for it is written, you shall not worship the Lord your God, and you shall serve him only. Do you notice the common denominator in all these by Christ? Every one of these answers, Jesus begins, it is written. It's written. In defending the church, in defending yourself, in defending your problems and your families, um, overcoming your problems, that is, Christ, as our model, always cites Scripture as an authoritative response. It is written. And, and, and the empty worldly chatter and the philosophies of this world, they'll tempt us to jeopardize our personal confession that we've made about Christ. They'll tempt us to... Um, jeopardize our ministry that he has placed us into and service, and uh, we'll even be tempted to compromise our doctrine that he has entrusted to us, that he has deposited with us. And, you know, the world will offer us some pretty alluring substitutions. Jesus was offered alluring substitutions. We might be offered uh, popularity, prestige, possessions, they all miss the mark. They swerve. And, and, and Timothy here could have compromised his biblical positions on doctrines that are socially unpopular in Ephesus. He could have bent a little bit. So let's meet some middle ground. He didn't. And, and he could have done some things that might have contributed to the explosive growth of his church if he just would have backed down on some things backed away from some things that people found offensive? He didn't. Um, his personal testimony, uh, he professed at baptism and when they laid hands on him and he said, Jesus is my Savior. He could have backed off and said, well, you know, there might be another Savior somewhere else. He didn't. He didn't. Because once you deviate from what is consistently clear in Scripture, what is evident in Scripture beyond the shadow of a doubt, you kick the legs out from the entire Bible. It will not stand. You compromise on one point, and then everything is in doubt. Everyone around you is in doubt. Well, if you don't believe that, then I don't believe the other part. We have to stand on the entire Bible. And as verse 21 says, if you do that, you just end up going astray from the faith. You're finished. You're finished. So many Christians and many churches... They've taken that route. Timothy is surely tempted to do the same. He's going into adversity. It's no fun going into adversity. It's no fun having confrontation. And, uh, but he could have abandoned some doctrines rather than persevering through the adversity. And, uh, you know, there's some churches that manage to avoid adversity altogether. They just avoid it altogether. And rather than suffering persecution, some have become quite popular. Rather, and rather than standing on the word, they've capitulated to the world. But at what cost? At what cost? The Apostle Paul has concluded the cost is too high. He said, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Let us pray.